Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with two RFF fellows, Alan Krupnik and Aaron Bergman, about a very hot topic in the world of energy, hydrogen. Specifically, we'll talk about the raft of new federal policies that are seeking to incentivize the production of low-emissions hydrogen, along with building up regional marketplaces, or hydrogen hubs. Along with understanding the technology and policy landscape, Alan and Aaron will help explain why there is considerable opposition to hydrogen development among some communities, and how hydrogen itself can contribute to global warming. Stay with us. Alan Krupnik and Aaron Bergman from RFF, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Alan. As always, our listeners will be very pleased to hear your voice again. But Aaron is new to RFF, relatively, and he's new to Resources Radio. So welcome, Aaron. And uh, we'd love to start off the episode by asking you, as we ask all our guests, how they got interested in working on energy or environmental topics, whether you sort of got inspired as a kid to work on this stuff or whether it came later in life. I mean, I guess I would say it came later in life. Um, you know, I was actually originally a physicist and uh, sort of doing physics, which was very far afield from the real world. But, you know, I was always interested in climate change and actually as a scientist to sort of, I guess, a little bit offended on sort of how the science was not always um, taken into account in public policy. So as I was sort of thinking about my career, I was very interested in, you know, having the opportunity to come to government and really work on climate change and sort of try to bring both sort of the scientific background, but sort of real analysis to that. So I actually came to DC on what's called a AAAS fellowship. That's a fellowship for the American Academy for the Advancements of Science. Um, I got to work in the DOE policy office for a number of years and was um, really lucky just recently to come here to work at RFF. And so it's really great. Yeah, well, we're so pleased to have you, and um, it's great that you have that uh, physics background that you can bring to bear and help educate all of us policy people uh, about <laughs> these important topics. So in today's conversation, we're going to talk about hydrogen. And before we get into details about policy and environmental issues, I think it would make sense for either of you to just like get us started with a little bit of background about the different ways that hydrogen is produced and also like what it might be used for, including how it's used today, and then how it might be used in the future in ways that people are clearly quite excited about. Um, so let's start with that topic. Aaron, why don't you get us started with that one? Yeah. So most of the hydrogen today is produced from natural gas through a process known as steam methane reforming. And so this produces both hydrogen from natural gas, which is sort of a combination of carbon and hydrogen, and also carbon dioxide. So it really does produce carbon dioxide emissions. Um, one of the things you can do to reduce those emissions is combine that through uh, carbon capture and sequestration. This is often called blue hydrogen. Um, the other main method that, you know, is not widely used right now in the world, but I think we'll see more as we sort of move towards a net zero future is producing hydrogen from water where you sort of run electricity through the water and you um, turn the water into separate components of hydrogen and oxygen. So this doesn't have any direct carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions when you do that. Um, but the thing is, it does use power from the grid and the grid right now does produce a lot of carbon dioxide as you produce electricity. So if you were to instead just fuel this process called electrolysis, um, 
just using uh, carbon-free electricity from renewable power, then that's called green hydrogen. So there's this whole array of hydrogen colors that you know we don't necessarily want to get at all of them. I believe they go all the way out to turquoise. But I think those are sort of the main techniques. You know, you can make it from fossil fuels um, by breaking up the carbon and the hydrogen in that way, and then making it from water into green hydrogen. You know, on the consumption side, a lot of hydrogen used today is used in refineries. They use it to um, reduce the amount of sulfur and oil and various other things in refining. It's also used a lot in making ammonia for fertilizing. So those, I think, are the big uses of hydrogen in the world right now. But, you know, as we're going forward, hydrogen really has the potential to displace a lot of um, carbon dioxide emissions in the industrial and other sectors out there. So I think some of the important ones are it can be used in iron and steel manufacturing. Um, it can be used in process heat. You know, a lot of industrial processes, you need heat to do it. And a lot of that is produced by burning natural gas. And there's a potential to replace some of that with hydrogen. Uh, it can be used in the electric sector. I think some people use it for long-term energy storage. You can store the hydrogen and then burn that hydrogen to generate electricity. And then finally you can move to the transportation sector. You know, a number of years ago, probably when I first started, people thought about using hydrogen for light-duty vehicles, sort of passenger vehicles. That doesn't seem so likely anymore. I think electricity seems to be more efficient, and we're already seeing a lot of electric vehicles out there. But there's still a lot of room for hydrogen to be used in heavy-duty vehicles, on ports, and transportation, and things like that. So I think a lot of people are exploring the use of hydrogen in those areas. Fantastic. I think that's a great place to get started. And as listeners of the show probably know, there's been a big expansion of federal government subsidies for hydrogen production, uh, particularly included in the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA. So Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about some of those policies and whether we have any sense at this point about how effective they might be in terms of actually spurring the industry to scale in the United States? Yeah, so there's two big ones that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think these are really kind of the first time hydrogen has been sort of directly subsidized under the tax code. Uh, the first one is uh, what we call, we call it the 45V tax credit. Uh, this is sort of named after where it appears in the tax code, so it's not very intuitive. But this actually subsidizes the production of hydrogen directly. It gives a certain amount of dollars for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce. But it's sort of based on a sliding scale. If you can produce hydrogen with zero emissions, you get a relatively high subsidy. And then as the amount of emissions um, that is associated with producing the hydrogen goes up, the amount of money you go down eventually to uh, zero. So, but, you know, I think it's not just the emissions that occur at the uh, direct point of hydrogen production that's important here. The tax code actually tells you to take into account what we call the life cycle emissions. So it's the emissions from the electricity that you use to produce the green hydrogen. Or if you're making electricity from natural gas, you don't just take into account any emissions that aren't captured at the site. You have to look at what is happening to the methane leakage upstream because methane is a greenhouse gas also. So you have to take all of those emissions together, you know, calculate that, sort of compare it to the table and see sort of what level of subsidy you get. Now, if you can qualify for the lowest level of emissions, it's a big deal. You know, that can really make your hydrogen very cost competitive and valuable, but it's hard. You know, I mean, you would need to either use zero carbon electricity um, from renewables or capture a very large, you know, in excess of 90% of the carbon from blue hydrogen. 
So how you calculate these things is going to depend a little bit on what the IRS decides to do with the things. There's not obvious ways necessarily to figure out how much emissions are associated with your electricity consumption. So the IRS is going to have to issue some regulations to help uh, the manufacturers do that. And they could make it difficult to demonstrate you're using zero carbon electricity, which would make it very hard for green hydrogen to compete. Or they could make it relatively straightforward um, for you to demonstrate that you have zero emission electricity, and that would make green hydrogen much more competitive. But you know the potential downside there is that if you don't get the calculation right, you might actually be increasing emissions due to the emissions from the electricity grid. So that's sort of the direct hydrogen production tax credit. I mean, what's interesting is there's also a tax credit for capturing carbon in the tax code. This is called the 45Q tax credit. And this has been around for a while, but they really pushed the value up in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so, you know, blue hydrogen, this is where you produce a hydrogen from natural gas and then capture the carbon and put it on the ground to utilize it. You know, they don't have to worry about life cycle calculations. They can just calculate the amount of hydrogen that they capture and store on the ground, multiply it by $85 a ton, and just take that. And it's relatively straightforward to do it, and it actually does provide a very significant subsidy for blue hydrogen. So I think that's one of the sort of interesting things that's been set up the Inflation Reduction Act, that there's a sort of relatively complex method of subsidizing hydrogen directly, but the blue hydrogen producers really have this easy path that can be almost of equal value than the hydrogen tax credit. Yeah, that's great. And just one point of clarification, I think you may have misspoke. You said that you get $85 a ton for each ton of hydrogen that you put in the ground, but I think you meant CO2, right? <laughs> Thank you, Beth. That is correct. Okay, great. So uh, with uh, that background in place, we know a little bit about the technology. We know a little bit about the policy. Obviously, there's tons that we could dig into there. Uh, but we're going to move forward with another question about another major federal policy push, which is on the demand side for hydrogen. So Aaron, you did a great job of helping us understand the supply side, uh, but who's going to use all that hydrogen? And, and one of the things the federal government is doing is trying to push this idea of hydrogen hubs. So Alan, what is a hydrogen hub and how are different parts of the United States competing to try to become a hub? Uh, well, thanks for asking that question, Daniel. Uh, so the purpose of this program, which Congress mandated in the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, uh, is to develop clean hydrogen hubs, which DOE defines as regional networks of hydrogen producers and consumers linked by connective infrastructure like pipelines. Uh, the program is supposed to help demonstrate the production, processing, delivery, storage, and end use of clean hydrogen and, um, you know, serve as a basis for the development of a clean hydrogen market. So this can be traded around the, around the country. Now, this is a very large program. It's um, uh, $7 billion will be available uh, to support these hubs. Maybe there'll be six to 10 hubs around the country that will be supported eventually. So we're already through kind of the very first round and there have been 79 preliminary applications, so from different groups, and 33 of these have been encouraged by DOE to uh, go to the next round and submit a full proposal. And then the rest of them have been discouraged, but they're not precluded from submitting anyway, and they could maybe redo their proposals and have a competitive proposal, and those are due in April. So Congress wrote this law 
to require uh, a couple of things of the program and above of these hubs. Uh, the two most important ones, I think, are regional diversity and feedstock diversity. So as you would expect from Congress, they want to encourage hubs in all regions of the country. So presumably every senator or you know House member can have something to uh, to tout. Um, and uh, and that's what they do. In addition, uh, the feedstock diversity you want. So feedstock diversity means how you're making uh, the hydrogen. So you can make it from fossil fuels, mostly natural gas. You can make it from renewables, as we've heard about from Aaron. You can make it from uh, biomass, and you can make it from nuclear power. These are the four that Congress kind of uh, identified. And in fact, we do see that coming uh, in these 33 uh, encouraged proposals. Um, and then there's a variety of end uses that these proposals are uh, identifying and plan to use. So they cover the transport sector, although as Aaron mentioned, not light duty vehicles, uh, the electricity sector, industrial uses, and even uh, residential and commercial heating. So, uh, so the program has really piqued the interest of industry, of uh, state governments, of nonprofits, some of which who are working on some of these proposals. And it certainly piqued our interest at RFF because we're studying this process uh, intently. Yeah. And I know one of the things, Alan, that you've been doing with Aaron and others at RFF is looking at um, the issues that the Department of Energy is going to have to consider as it's trying to figure out, you know, which of the 33 encouraged applications, or maybe some of the discouraged applications, which ones will ultimately be designated as hubs. So what are some of those kind of top tier issues that, you know, DOE is going to be considering? And um, yeah, if you could just elaborate on them a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. There's a whole bunch of issues that uh, have to be addressed uh, reasonably well. The first is the uh, decision process that DOE is going to take to try to sort out from these 33, maybe six to 10 that get funding. And that process so far is kind of confusing. There's a scoring process, which is kind of standard for DOE's grant making, uh, where you get a certain amount of points for the experience of the team and their ability to follow through and the quality of the proposal. Uh, but there's also at least 16 additional criteria that are in the uh, announcement for uh, submitting applications. And some of these have kind of extra credit attached to them, although it's not quantified. So, and then there's some key criteria that are actually missing. Like as economists, we would look for cost effectiveness of producing hydrogen to be important. That's not an explicit criteria. Uh, and there, there are many others. So that's a big issue. A second one is just how to sort all this out, just the, the quantity of the work to go from 33 serious multi-partnered proposals down to uh, six to 10. That's going to be tough. The third is staffing at DOE and the fact that there are some new offices that have been created, one of which is really responsible for this program. Uh, so every, they're trying to gear up, staff up 
with enough people to really uh, um, make these decisions. And, and, and that's a big ask. The next one is political pressure. So the congressional committees with responsibility for the oversight of this program obviously contain senators from states that have submitted uh, proposals and uh, and then there's proposals that came from states that don't have senators on this committee. So how that all works out, I have no idea uh, at this point, but you can imagine that DOE is going to feel political pressure. And, and finally, there's the need for speed because uh, Congress, when they passed these uh, important laws, they expected that the United States would get going on its uh, uh, CO2 mitigation activities to meet uh, the Biden administration's goals of net zero by 2050 and some interim goals. Uh, and there's a lot of concern about what happens if the administration's turnover in 2024 and there's less enthusiasm for uh, activities to uh, address climate change. So there's a need for speed and with short staff and so on, it's, um, it's a big ask. Yeah. Do you have any, I mean, not to uh, put you on the spot, but do you have any sense internally of like whether DOE appears to have the capacity to accomplish this like major task uh, in the time frame? that it envisions and at the level of quality that we might like? Or is that something that we can't really know from the outside? Um, well, the people that we've interacted with are very talented and very committed to this program. And so it, it's an impressive group. It's just a lot of work. Um, so uh, also the program, um, I talked about the six to 10 hubs being uh, eventually declared winners. But it doesn't take place immediately. There's uh, this April deadline to get your applications in. And then sort of the first choosing and winnowing down will be in September of 2023. And then there are milestones to be reached along the way after that. So, um, so it'll be a couple of years before these hubs are actually operational. So, I mean, and this is not just the hydrogen hubs that DOE has. There's just the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act just gave a tremendous amount of money for DOE for things including, you know, direct air capture and other research and development. And I know DOE is very interested in hiring people right now. So if any of the listeners here are interested <laughs> in a government job, you know, you can go to energy.gov and I'm sure uh, they would be yes, interested R in your application. RFF will take a commission on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, RFF's hiring too, so uh, you know, apply to us before you apply to DOE. Actually, actually, if we might take a moment, this is an issue because everyone wants to hire people now yeah. who can address climate change from an engineering perspective, from an economic perspective, from a sociological perspective, from a bureaucratic administrative perspective. This is, you know, it's not just RFF and DOE, it's across the country, indeed across the world. So I think there's going to be a real premium on these people. That's a great point. And that's that's definitely a future podcast for us, you know, staffing the energy transition or something like that. Um, that's a great suggestion, Alan. 
Okay. Um, so we've talked about the technology. We've talked about some of the policies, but people have all sorts of concerns about uh, the potential for scaling up hydrogen uh, from all sorts of angles. And, and I want to ask you all about two of them today. The first one is about environmental justice concerns. So, um, you know, there's been major opposition to a hydrogen development and not just blue hydrogen development uh, from some environmental justice advocates. Alan, I'm wondering if you can help us understand where that opposition comes from uh, and whether there's room for compromise. So in other words, like, are there middle grounds that can be reached so that large scale hydrogen could be deployed in ways that would be amenable to some EJ advocates? Or is there not middle ground? Is it kind of a deal breaker? Well, to answer the last question first, um, there are middle grounds. The issue is whether uh, the EJ uh, groups will accept them and whether industry groups and government can deliver. So let's start there. So, uh, but to, to get back to kind of the beginning of this, so the environmental justice groups uh, feel that disadvantaged communities have been uh, taking a disproportional burden of environmental pollution from many sources over many, many years. Right. Which is right something we yeah covered on the show a lot, and there's lots of good evidence for that. Yeah, there's plenty of evidence for that. So this, yeah. this is appropriate. And they see hydrogen production as another in a long series of industrial activities that's going to affect these communities. Um, there are two particular uh, pollutants that they're concerned about, uh, and that's nitrogen dioxide and ammonia, which are both emissions from uh, the use of carbon capture, and there can also be emissions from the use of that uh, steam methane reforming, the main approach that uh, Aaron mentioned. Plus, there are emissions from the use of hydrogen in industry, chemical industry, and so on. So there are some grounds for being concerned about that. Now, all polluters have various obligations under, particularly air polluters, have various obligations under the Clean Air Act uh, to keep these emissions to meet standards. But still, this can be viewed as an added burden. Now, as as far as the... Uh, the opposition, is there room to move? Uh, the first point is, I think that there needs to be an open and deep dialogue with these groups, which there has not really been. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing, very little talking. And then what has to happen is to identify locations of particular sensitivity to disadvantaged communities and maybe pledge to stay away from them. And uh, pledges to eliminate added emissions by absolutely top-level emissions uh, controls being added to polluting processes. Uh, but there are some issues that give me a little bit more pause. You know, the E in EJ is environmental. And the EJ groups, like many environmental groups, uh, have an ethic about keeping it in the ground, that is, keep the fossil fuels in the ground rather than using them and then trying to clean up the mess they make. So that one's pretty tough to deal with. Um, also, I don't want to treat all environmental justice groups as equal and as monolithic. Uh, for instance, Native American communities, um, 
will have a lot of disadvantaged uh, areas within them. But there's more concern among some tribes with jobs and replacing lost fossil fuel jobs with jobs in hydrogen, for instance. So those communities may be a little bit more amenable to larger scale hydrogen projects. Right. And as we've talked about, Alan, on, you know, not, not on the show, but, you know, there are a couple tribes uh, that we know quite well that are actively pursuing projects around hydrogen and carbon capture. One more question, Alan, for you before we uh, go back to Aaron is um, you mentioned the need for deep, sustained engagement with local communities. And you said that right after you answered my question uh, in which you said we need to go really fast. So can you reflect on this tension between wanting to go really fast and getting these things deployed and at the same time needing to do deep community engagement, which presumably has to occur over a longer timescale? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't have a solution to this. I should say, as fast as we want to go, there's time because, and maybe unfortunately in some cases, because, you know, to get hydrogen pipelines in place, for instance, or if you capture the carbon and make blue hydrogen, to get the CO2 pipelines in place to deliver it to long-term storage, it's going to take new pipelines because our pipeline network is so sparse. And getting a pipeline approved and built, getting your right-of-way, imminent domain, uh, these are lengthy processes. So, uh, so there's time, I think, to negotiate. But of course, no one wants to dilly-dally. And I think one thing worth adding is it's actually one of the things that Alan mentioned that is scored as part of the applications for the hydrogen hubs is community engagement. So, you know, DOE is definitely taking that seriously as part of the application process. Right. Great. Thank you. So Aaron, I'd love to ask you this last question before we go to the top of the stack, which is another environmental question, but it's about um, kind of greenhouse gas impacts of hydrogen. So we've been talking about hydrogen as a sort of low carbon solution, but if hydrogen leaks out of pipelines or other infrastructure, it has an indirect uh, greenhouse gas effect. And as most people know, um, you know, we don't have a great track record of managing leaks from pipelines, especially around things like methane. Um, where we've learned over time that, you know, methane leaks are quite more substantial than we had previously thought. So can you talk a little bit about this issue of hydrogen leaks, why they're a big deal from an environmental perspective, and whether you think there are cost-effective solutions to actually keep those leaks to a really, really low number? So I, mean, I guess I'll sort of just first start with, um, you know, hydrogen is sort of unusual. You know, generally when we talk about greenhouse gases, we're talking about the gases that actually trap the heat in the atmosphere. But hydrogen doesn't do that. It actually, it's how it interacts with the other gases in the atmosphere and causes them to stay in the atmosphere longer that leads to its global warming impact. So because it's a little more complicated, I know the number, what we call the global warming potential, which is sort of the ratio of how much heat it traps compared to carbon over sort of a hundred year time frame. Loosely, I don't. Hopefully, the scientists won't get angry at me for that description. Is on the order of ten or so. So it is. It definitely has a greenhouse gas impact. It is definitely not as large as, for example, hydrofluorocarbons and things like that, which can have these uh, global warming potentials in the hundreds and thousands. But it's still definitely something to you know pay attention to. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of. Uh, consensus right now on just how big a deal this is. Um, you know, 
you have to compare the impacts of the leaked hydrogen on the atmosphere with, you know, you are displacing current uses of carbon. So there's, there's benefits and there's costs from the global warming point of view. With respect to leakage, you know, hydrogen is a very small molecule. You know, it's the smallest molecule out there, I think, that has two atoms in it. So it can get through a lot of tight spaces. So it's definitely a challenge to keep it from leaking. I mean, there are engineering solutions. I know there's a lot of work going on right now trying to figure out how best to do this. I think this is still really an area of ongoing research and development. You know, there you could we can definitely do it. You can definitely, you know, store hydrogen in a way that doesn't leaks, but you know, you asked about can you do it in a cost-effective manner? And I think that's something that remains to be seen. I, I might add one thing to what Aaron said, which is you can blend uh, a small percentage of hydrogen with natural gas. Uh, so if you wanted to burn hydrogen, for instance, at a power plant, you could add maybe up to 10% uh, of that mixture could be hydrogen. And that would allow you to use the existing pipeline network for natural gas, which is really extensive. But if you get more than that, and obviously if you get to 100%, you're going to need special pipelines uh, to stop those sneaky molecules from leaking. Yeah. Great. So definitely lots to watch for on sort of all sorts of environmental fronts. And, and I'm sure there are other environmental questions we could talk about. But uh, as per usual, um, we don't have time. And uh, so instead, we're going to ask you both to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great. It can be related to the environment or not. We're not too picky. Um, and so let's start with Alan. Uh, Alan, last time I think you recommended something about the Holocaust. So I'm hoping you can give us something a little more upbeat. <laughs> I'm afraid not. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, there's upbeat parts and not upbeat parts. The last book I read was actually by Ivana Lynch, and it's called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting. And Ivana Lynch uh, uh, is uh, an icon in my family because she is Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter series, in the Harry Potter movies. Uh, and she wrote a, a, basically a biography, which uh, is very, um, has some very low parts because she's had anorexia. And so I really learned a lot about anorexia that I was not planning to learn about. Uh, but what she does talk about is how she ended up uh, getting the role of Luna Lovegood. And uh, and it's very entertaining. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Alan. Aaron, how about you? So um, I have two small children at home. So that has had the uh, effect of making my tastes very lowbrow. So the most recent thing I watched was actually a movie from the 80s called Clue which um, is one of those movies I saw growing up, and you sort of wonder, is it really going to hold up? And it's sort of got Tim Curry, Martin Mull. I mean, it's got uh, Madeline Kahn. It's got a great cast. And yeah, it kind of mostly holds up. There's definitely some parts there. But it was, uh, it's, you know, it's a good way to distract yourself as you're trying to fall asleep. That sounds great. Yeah, I, I understand that issue of having young kids. And another movie that people have probably heard about uh, and that we were talking about earlier is Glass Onion, which might be particularly relevant for today's episode because it does feature hydrogen. Although I have to say they don't really get into the weeds about the kind of hydrogen that they're interested in. It's like some kind of, it looks like a piece of chalk, actually. It was quite confusing about what exactly they were going to do with that hydrogen in Glass Onion. 
I feel like solid that, hydrogen would be fairly hard to come by. That's right. And, and that hydrogen uh, is not well contained. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. So we'll leave the film uh, critiques for another day <laughs> and uh, just say thank you again to Alan Krupnik and Aaron Bergman of RFF. Thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us understand the basics on this fast evolving issue of hydrogen. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.